Rise up. What do you think of when you hear those words? I searched Twitter this week. First thing I found was hashtag rise up from the Atlanta Falcons. It's the meme you're using, and you see all these slow motion videos of their spring training as they're pushing inside deflated defenders and catching soaring Hail Marys. Or rise up could refer to the no more campaign, which this week celebrated a unanimous vote by the U.S. Senate. That's right, unanimous by the Senate, thanks be to God, to approve basic rights for victims of rape. It could refer to the Rise Up Country Show, a radio show streamed over the radio waves every Sunday morning from 7 to 10 a.m. with country music from the likes of Darius Rucker to Carrie Underwood. Or it could refer to that little mantra for that little show on Broadway right now called Alexander Hamilton. America sings for you. But more on that show and what it has to do with all this in just a moment. I'm interested in rising up because of the power and the increasing prevalence of the image. Rising up is the sun on a new day. Rising up is the yeast on a fresh loaf of bread. Rising up is the power of the resurrection and the hope that our deity is not a God who lies down on the job. But what troubles me at the moment is that when we think about rising up, we tend to lack a distinction between resurrection and resuscitation. And our familiarity with the latter seems to be interfering with the power of the former. And if we're going to have any hope for the future, my dear compromands, I need you all to help all of them, and to help me figure out how to rise up. I hadn't really thought about this distinction very much until I entered the library of Wesley Seminary this week, and I picked up a little book called Resurrection, A Guide for the Perplexed. Being a little perplexed about the subject myself, it was a perfect little tome. The author guided me through the places in the Bible and through intertestamental literature that seems to point out places in the Bible that speak of what happens to our bodies when we die, or what happens in between, or what happens when God comes again for this new reign. Now I'll save you all the read and give you the cliff notes. The Bible is all over the place when it comes to what happens to us when we die, and what heaven or the in-between or anything like that is going to look like. It's just not clear. Anyone who tells you so is lying. But the author does give us three points to focus on when we think about a biblical definition of resurrection. First of all, there's a reference to a literal death. We get that. Second, there's a revival after an interim term of lifelessness, some period of time. And then third, there's a new embodied post-mortem life that stands in continuity with, but is not identical to the pre-mortem existence. Take, for example, 
let's say, Jesus. His body is mutilated. He comes back to life after how many days? Three days. But his new self isn't the best cosmetic job. We know this because the fellows who meet him on the road to Emmaus think he's a stranger. The women at the tomb think he's a gardener, and his own disciples think he's a ghost. No one seems to recognize Jesus at first glance until he reveals the new thing to them. Now, if Jesus had simply been resuscitated, you and I wouldn't be here today confirming our faith that Jesus got back up and walked around again until he died of an old age surrounded by loved ones. As the compromands remember, our very first day of class was doing an exercise that discussed something just like this. We wrote our own obituaries. Do you guys remember that? Where most of us said that we died at a ripe old age, surrounded by people we loved. But if we're honest, it was hard to articulate how resurrection mattered for the rest of our lives. But resurrection does matter. Our scripture today makes that clear. Elijah comes to Zarephath in the middle of a nationwide famine. And he does what God tells him to do. Find the widow and she'll take care of you. Which, like most of God's commands, is absolutely crazy. Find the person in the midst of a famine who is least likely to have any additional resources, being at the bottom of the social economic totem pole, and tell her to cook you a meal and expect her to believe that instead of dying along with her son, she'll have enough food for all of you to make it through three years of famine. You have to be nuts to believe that kind of prophecy, and yet that's what Elijah does. He does it in the word of God comes to pass. But her life, the, the widow of Zarephath, wasn't simply brought back to normal after an encounter with this messenger of God. Her life got better. Her life got better. And you believe this until the second half of the story. They all escaped death just in time for the widow's son to die. And it's hard to read through the translation, but she uses heavy sarcasm in Hebrew to blame Elijah for this. Then Elijah pleads with God for the boy's life. Now the son is revived, and the widow affirms her faith. This would be a story simply about a miraculous resuscitation, except... Notice who the focus of the story is on. It's not on the son. It's on the widow. The son doesn't have a single line of dialogue. But this mother, this widow, goes from starvation to abundant sustenance. And from anger at God to believing fervently in the power of the word of the Lord to bring new life and new faith 
into her. This story is about the boy's resuscitation and the widow's new resurrection life. My friends, new life is the key to understanding the difference between resuscitation and resurrection. You've heard that spoken about Jesus, and you see it in the story of the widow. God's power leaves life better than it was before. That's resurrection. But as you know, too often we we settle for resuscitation. In the political realm, it sounds like a prayer that God will make America great like it used to be. And in our personal lives, we hope that God will bring back the zeal in our marriage back like it used to be. And in our churches, we pray for revival, which, if we're honest, usually means we pray that God will send more young people to do church the way we've always done it, to put the defibrillator on the American church and keep it pumping along as it did throughout the 20th century. If we're honest, we don't want new life. We want the old one back. But what if, what if we could have an America not as it was, but one with new life? Or a marriage, not as it was, but beginning a bold new chapter together? Or a church? Not kept alive, but born again. I can tell you that these compromands want something better than to keep an institution breathing. They want the one thing that's always made the church a brighter light in the world. They want resurrection. They want to rise up. And I know it, because I know what they're listening to in their earbuds. <laughs> Hamilton, the aforementioned musical smash hit. It's everywhere. The creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, is on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's already won a Grammy, a Pulitzer Prize, a MacArthur Genius Award, and his show received more Tony nominations than any other show in Broadway history. In the autobiographical song, the beginning of the show, Hamilton suggests we take an honest stand and enroll like Moses, claiming our promised land. When I first heard this line, that this was not a moment but a movement, I almost wept. It resonated so deep in my soul. The sense that we are on a precipice of this massive change of so many things in our world. Not a resuscitation of what was, but a resurrection. I sent the soundtrack to a friend of mine who's the dean of a law school, a boomer. And I asked him if he had heard that, and he said that he hadn't had the same impression at all. I was surprised. But then I started hearing about to whom this show has been so extraordinary. 
The ripples effect of this musical have been huge. Reports are coming from schools across the country that students are begging their teachers to turn on the soundtrack as they work on their own work in school. As the confirmands and I sat in between services on our Youth Sunday in Pentecost, somebody pulled out their phone and started playing the music and began to break it down. Every hip-hop, every R&B word drilled into their beautiful Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Northwest D.C. souls. (laughs) And I think, I think it's because you guys want to rise up. They're the kind of students that are fueling the passion for political candidates who speak of revolution, just as Hamilton did. They're the tail end of my generation, the millennials, who, according to generational theory, parallel those born between 1900 and 1920 those who are responsible for building the institutions that have defined the last 80 to 90 years. So you heard that right. The Confermans and I are going to be building the institutions that guide humanity for the next 80 to 90 years. Time to duck and cover. (laughs) But if Strauss Howe generational theory is right, it's only natural. Perhaps the Gospels and the story of Elijah and the widow were even written by one of our parallel generations because they shared our passion for resurrection. This soul-wrenching belief that the institutions we live in lack the justice that are needed and that new ones need to be formed. Compromands, my challenge for you today is nothing less and that calling that is increasingly clear upon our lives. Rise up. When your country's on its knees, you rise up. Tell your brother that he's got to rise up. Tell your sister she's got to rise up. Because that's exactly what the church needs. Church of Jesus Christ doesn't need resuscitation. It needs resurrection. I think you and I and all of us have been called to nothing less. I believe that this little musical from an immigrant from Puerto Rico is striking a chord because all of us have figured out that resurrection is necessary. I thought about this since the first day I heard the show. I believe that maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda knew this in his heart, but I believed even more after buying this book. There's a story inside about Chris Jackson, the man who plays George Washington. He has what Manuel Miranda calls the makings of a megachurch pastor. And he's put those skills to use in a ritual that occurs underneath the stage of the theater just before every show. That ritual is a prayer circle. According to the author, Chris Jackson tells everyone to hold their hands and to breathe. And to breathe again. 
then offers a little benediction, half locker room pep talk, half petition to the Almighty. Quote, let's be sure that no matter what happens out there, I've got you, he told his congregation one night. Let's agree that for the next two and a half hours, he says to the cast, this is the most important thing we'll do in our lives. He closes with the hope that everybody in the audience, on the stage, in the orchestra pit, that everyone will leave the theater a better person than when they walked in. In that prayer, I hear all the elements of resurrection. Death to the old, an interim period of lifelessness, an appearing of a new life in continuity with the old self, but somehow transformed by the power of God. The cast of Hamilton expect resurrection every night. Elijah points us to it. Jesus shows us how to rise up. So will you. Compromands, let us rise up for the sake of the kingdom of God. Amen.